Welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Um, today's episode is a bit of a departure. Uh, Darren is away. It's just me. And today's guest is a visitor to town, the great County Clare fiddle player, Tola Custy. Uh, he was in Melbourne to take part in a bushfire relief fundraiser at the Last Jar uh, over the weekend there, just passed. And I managed to sit him down for a couple of hours to have a great chat about the history of Irish music, about his own playing and about uh, the role of his father, Frank Custy, in preserving Irish music. So you're in for a treat. It's a really fascinating conversation. And uh, um, yeah, uh, we just get into deep water very quickly, so it's great. Now, me and Darren had originally planned to make the music from the fundraiser the, the main bulk of today's episode, but unfortunately we had a bit of a hitch with the recording, but we did get a great set of tunes recorded with Tola on fiddle, Edo Barker on fiddle and Corinne Stratting on flute. So you're going to hear that right at the end of Tola's interview. We go straight from the last piece that he plays into that uh, series of live pieces. So um, I hope you enjoy that and uh, we'll see you on the other side. Uh, one quick note, anyone who is a patron of the podcast who's gone to patreon.com forward slash Blarney Pilgrims, all the proceeds from today's episode will also go to Bushfire Relief and the Country Fire Authority, who are the recipients of the the benefit gig at the weekend. The Last Jar are having two further benefit gigs, so check out details for that on the Last Jar's Facebook page. And now, here is my interview with Tola Custy.
Tola Kasti, welcome to the Blarney Pilgrims podcast. Thank you very much, Dominic. It's my real pleasure to be here. And I must say, I've been enjoying some of your previous uh, recordings. Uh, I suppose a little special one for me was uh, a man I hadn't met in a long time, haven't met in a long time, Mr. Kieran O'Grady. But I really, really, I think you caught him on a lovely emotional moment. And uh, anybody that I've been talking to who has been listening to it said exactly the same thing. And sometimes, you know, you know this person as a musician, but you don't know them as a human. And uh, it's lovely when you get to know them a little bit better. From the human side, I always think. Um, I'm fascinated with the non-musician. I'm fascinated with what the non-musician needs to interact with this animal we call music. And sometimes what the non-musician needs is your human side. They need to know what makes you tick, just as much as how you play. And I think uh, Kieran really, he, he, he brought his little relaxed mode to the microphone, and I really loved it. Uh, also, obviously, a great friend of mine, a Melbourne born, or no, Melbourne man, but born in Canberra, Mr. Edo Barker, who uh, I would have uh, crossed paths with both, both here and over in Ireland, actually, in, in his town quite a lot. So uh, it was lovely, really lovely to hear what moved him when it came to music and how he got into this. So that was lovely. Uh, it's funny, like everybody... Everybody's sort of connected, you know. <laughs> it's funny hearing, I think uh, it was Kate Burke who said she heard Ido Barker playing a, playing a tune and she was like, ah, that's what I, <laughs> that's what I want to do, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, well, so, so it's, it's, thanks very much. That's really oh, lovely Thank to hear you. that. Thank you. Um, for the benefit of listeners who aren't steeped in Irish music, myself, I'm probably not steeped, but, you know, what, what's... Uh, your first encounter with music exactly like if you do you have a first memory I do I do this is a, a hilarious one um, obviously my dad who I'm going to talk an awful lot about I can't avoid it um, my first musical memory is an unusual one we used to my dad was a primary school teacher but he was also a farmer so our we spent for the first 12 years of my life we spent every single day together basically because he was my teacher and then he was we would go onto a farm all the custy kids and uh, we would farm together and at the time I'd say we were absolutely sick of the sight of each other but my musical memory is being in an old VW Beetle which we used to use as our farm car and all the seats except the driver's seats were pulled out because we used to bring calves in it, but I can remember holding on to the, the with, with these front handles that you could hold on to in the VW Beetle. But ah, yeah, yeah, and my dad used to whistle through his teeth. But I can remember he used to whistle that one um, over the sea to sky, speed bunny boat like a bird on the wing, and he used to whistle through his teeth. That is my first memory because I, I know this is awful, and he won't mind me saying it because I've reminded him of this. He whistled so badly out of tune. That's all I remember. It used to annoy the daylights out of me. So that's my first musical experience. That's so like I guess we should explain a little bit about the significance of your father's role in the history of Irish music. So, you, so, um, so your father is Frank Custy. He is. he is. He's Frank Custy. He came at music. I love telling people this, especially people I might teach that have come at music in their later years, because my dad really didn't play a note, had no interest, almost despised it. In many ways, he had no interest in music till he was 27. He was a wonderful athlete. So was my uncle. 
And even to this very day, they're known just as much for their athleticism in the game of hurling, which is the game with sticks uh, that we use in Ireland. Um, They're known just as well as that as they are for his music. So he was a primary school teacher. He was in a school where the other woman was a principal. She came to him one day and she goes, you know, one of us needs to learn how to teach music. I'm too old. You better go do it. And he nearly resigned. So he goes and he has his first musical lesson in Crusheen in County Clare, north of Venice, to a man called Jack Mulcair. And he never played a moment of sport ever again. He fell in love with music. And And, and what was he playing? He started on fiddle and banjo. Strings were his thing. My great, my grand aunt and Nell Brought a f- was a very nice fiddle player. So that was their only historical music that was in the custody side of the family. So he was so he he fell in love with the process. He he's one of these curious individuals. He he likes to see how it works, and he likes to tell everybody else, "Look, this is easy. Here's how it works. Just do it." So his first observation, I think, and it was a little bit of a dilemma that was in the music scene, let's say in the very early sixties, which was this, that. There was such a shortage of instruments. Music was in many ways um, on a very much downward curve um, socially. And because of that, if you did show promise as a musician, it was almost like this master-student situation where only the gifted were brought to somebody and this golden music was given. And they, but it was only passed on to the ones who, who were good enough. My dad said that's not fair because he looked at it like sport. He went, hang on. Can't everyone do this? Can't everyone play hurling or play football or play anything? Why can't they do it in music? But he, he observed that there was two problems. One, the stress of being given an instrument to a certain child is actually counterproductive. A parent arrives home, there's that instrument, I've paid thousands for that, don't you dare break it and you better practice every day. And he goes, again, you're starting it the wrong way. So what he did was he's first, listen to this one, like in 1962 or 63, he gets on a plane in Shannon Airport, he flies to New York, he buys three banjos and he flies home again and goes to work on Monday morning. So he started gathering instruments, but not only that, he started learning how to repair them all. Like you take an accordion or even a concertina, let's say. He learned how to repair all the little springs by using um, safety pins. He learned how to fix bows by, if you remember all the old cars, the old antennae, the old aerials were kind of these adjustable and and different sized movable things. He would break them apart and then if you broke your bow, he would just wedge it together, a splint. But what it meant was he literally arrived to a kid and went, here, take that, do your worst, rather than take that, mind it and don't ever disrespect this music because he, he never had that experience himself. And then he became one of those first people that was more a facilitator than a master. Which, again, here's another one that he, he did. If a parent came to my dad and said, I'd like Johnny or Mary to, to learn music, you go, great. Well, then you're going to have to learn too. So that you just didn't have this situation where Johnny or Mary had to go into that room and was pushed into almost like homework. Everybody was playing in that house. That's what he wanted. And also, if you think about it, the kids are going to learn faster so that it's their first element of success versus their parents. Well, you know, it's a pretty interesting reversal of, a, you know, the power dynamic is completely different, yes. right? Exactly. He wanted to dispense with the mystery. 
he said, there's nothing mysterious. Let's just us all do it. And he would, and another thing, and he won't mind me saying this, because, you know, he says it himself. Because he came at it late, he didn't get up to the higher brilliance or genius standards, right? But because of that, he w- when a parent or somebody would come, he'd go, I will teach them to play. I will give them... I will give them a social outlet that they can play in. If they want to really, really, really become good, that's up to them. But I will create this circle. I will bring them all in. They will make friends. And believe it or not, this was very radical for the 60s and 70s. Another thing he did, because I I, I come from primary school teaching myself, um, he noticed that the staff notation was a problem to people who had learning difficulties. So, but he also knew that there are certain people who can't just immediately learn by ear. So what did he do? He actually discovered and started developing the ABC system. And he went, look, it's as simple as this. Just that's the note for A, that's the note for B. It's like you read it. It's not exact rhythm. It's up to you to get the rhythm, but here's how we start. So, so um, for the benefit of people yeah. who aren't, like, so what do you mean by that system? So, well, like, the, uh, the normal musical notation, or if, you, if you're not familiar with it, and I'm very unfamiliar with it, is lines and dots. Yeah. And, and even as, you know, uh, um, I wouldn't have been the sharpest student myself, so even to this very day, the lines and dots scare the living daylights out of me. So he wanted, what he wanted, again, I, I have to say it, he wanted to show that this is so easy. Just do it. Don't think too much. If you want to take yourself seriously, by all means do. But don't take yourself so seriously at the start. Be patient. Use this as a social outlet. Grab your instrument, go out on a Saturday night and make some noise. And that was very, very radical because he wasn't going, don't do this. Oh my God, don't learn that tune. You're playing that wrong. That's the wrong version. He didn't have a clue. But what it meant was, all he wanted was for you to be curious and to find out these things, mm-hmm. like education. So, so your, da- your dad's a legendary figure. No, I yes. mean, that's... And, and, and I, I have to be careful, because I'm a custody, so I don't want to be blowing his trumpet. No, I know, but yeah. like, um, I guess I'm saying this for the benefit of yeah, lots he... of people who don't maybe know that significance. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't have known any of that history, but I knew his name straight away. Exactly, like, and, and again, he's legendary because... People felt very relaxed around him, uh, whereas the masters of that time, and these were genius musicians, so I'm not taking from them either. These were people who were playing at a far high standard, so they could, they could only take on somebody who was genius-like. My dad said, that's fine if you're a genius, so you really don't need a teacher, is what he'd say. All and, and, and those players that you're talking about are, um, who are some of the... The, those genius players who were around, like okay. so. uh, you'd have had people like a fiddle player and a flute player called Pather O'Loughlin. He would have made that famous, that iconic album, "The Southwest Wind" with Ronan Brown. If you're in Ireland, everybody knows it. The other people would have been um, the Paddy Murphys from Kilmaley, the Gus Tierneys from Ennis. The there would have been many people like that. That would. You know, even in pi- it would have been even more so in piping situations because you can imagine how difficult it would have been to be to source a set of pipes. Right, so, so that goes to the to the to the heart of something that's really useful to talk about, which is the state of music, Irish music, uh, traditional music, quote unquote, at that time. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, wh- like, wh- what was the context in which um, your father was learning? You know, what what like societally? Well. 
the easiest way to come at what I'm about to explain, if you're not familiar with almost the socio-economic cultural situation we had in Ireland in the 1950s, which was this, that if, if you've ever been familiar with that Ken Loach movie, Jimmy's Hall, Jimmy Hall, Jimmy Gralton was the only Irish citizen in the history of the Irish state to be deported and exiled from Ireland in the 1930s. Because Jimmy Gralton was a socialist, so then they called him communist, but more so, he built his own hall. He built his own social centre in direct opposition to the church who were just about to build their halls. So if you watch that movie, The Ballroom of Romance, where the priest is walking down the middle, keeping the couples apart in the 1950s, that's church-owned. Where does that come from? Well, let's go back to the 1920s and the 1930s, especially in Ireland. The easiest place to play music was in the house, the cabin, the, the cottage, the farmer's cottage. So take my parish of Dysart. My grandmother and my dad's house, they were allowed, not allowed, but it was agreed upon. They could have a dance night once a year. My grandmother baked loads of bread. She probably made buttermilk. There was probably a keg of beer. You paid a penny in. So musicians were brought in to play for the dances. But there was, it was, a, it was, no, it didn't buy you an awful lot for that year, but it bought something of value and yet it was, it was a simple monetary and it was a social outlet. The church started looking at this and they started seeing that there was, and I mean this, and I, I've argued this with many people, but I have the historical books that I've read about this. The church started looking at this and they went, hang on a minute, we can make a bit of money here. So what did they do? They said, those house dances, there's awful social things happening there. People are turning to sin there horrible they're the places of the devil and they banned them and what they said was listen let's go to our church let's come to our hall which is right beside the church in general and we'll do the foxtrot and we'll do all the modern dances that were coming in now in the ballroom of romance time that's beautiful and it is true if you weren't really into irish music you didn't care you still just wanted to go out on a saturday night and the last thing you wanted to do was to be condemned on sunday morning as the priest spoke so but what it was was it killed irish music because it made irish music dirty so into the 1940s you had a huge economic depression just after world war ii but more so, you had a downturn and a change in this. And also, there was another situation that there was a movement from the West of, of marrying aged women who moved either to Dublin or left the country completely. So you had a, so, a whole group of men in general who had no social outlet because they couldn't go to the dances because they were slightly too old and they couldn't foxtrot and they didn't want to. And they were kings in their own musical realm before that and now they were gone. But... I think we were talking about this in this context. People who were the age of, let's say, Paddy Fitzgerald, Joe Fitzgerald. In their 20s, early. And they kept playing music. In many ways, they were radical. But we owe my generation and younger people than me and people slightly older than me owe them so much because music nearly died. Music came very close to stopping. And we have to thank organisations like Cultus Kjoltorieren because here's what they did. I love this bit. Here's what they did. They knew that if they tried to revive Irish music in its pre previous state, the church wouldn't have let them. So what did they do? Invention. 
It's beautiful. They invented the Cayley Band. But to draw people in and make it something that they could all talk about, they invented the band competition. Beautiful. Suddenly, in two different parts of the county, Clare, in Tulla, you had the famous Tulla Cayley Band. In Kilfenora, you had the famous Kilfenora Cayley Band going to competition, being supported with people with banners and Kilfenora or Tulla written. Suddenly the church couldn't say a thing because it wasn't in the house. In fact, it wasn't in any way to dance. It was a competition. But it was like Barcelona versus Real Madrid. It, it moved people to play. It moved people to go, wow, this music is okay. And it was extremely important, but I really mean it. If, you know, the Paddy Fitzgeralds, the, the P. Joe Hayes's, Martin Hayes's dad, people like that, the J.J. Conway, I still meet him, the Kitty Lenan. These people were radical, again, and clever. It, it, it's interesting because for a lot of people in my generation, um, radical wouldn't be the word that you would necessarily attach to, to yeah. the cultists, right? Yeah. So um, it, it's partly ignorance on our part, yeah. but it's also like around the time when I was growing up, um, the, the cultist was the least interesting manifestation yes. of Irish music around in, in my in my mind. Now I think about it and I think exactly what you were saying. I was I think, thank Somebody was playing that stuff and keeping it going, like Dominic, like Thursday after yeah. Thursday after Thursday yes. after Thursday for yes. 40 years in and the like, town world. Imagine this. They invent the idea, the notion of the fla in 1952. Very first one ever held. And suddenly people were going... And the fla is what? The fla is almost like um, a fiesta. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's the world it's the, <laughs> it's, it's the world gathering, even though it, at the time it was extremely small and, and, and not that large. But what it meant was that, <coughs> excuse me, just like the All-Ireland hurling or football finals, suddenly people were jumping on trains or cycling to see this All-Ireland fla band competition. And suddenly people, especially from the rural areas, Dominic, who were even being drummed down more as unsophisticated and unclean, suddenly had something to feel very proud about. That this was the music that they remembered from the house, now had the sophistication of people dressing in shorts and ties, jackets, with the name of the band in front. Suddenly it was, in, in, a, in every essence it was cleansed in the right way cleverly so the church had to shut their mouths they couldn't actually attack it which was I, I, I admire anybody who can what's the word surf along the social laws that are created around you and get away with it I mean like, isn't that the beauty of creativity not just music it's social it's, it's extremely important we know it of so human invention to yeah. <laughs> we know it in you know I mean like it was our Gandhi moment I really mean that, because they didn't upset anybody, yet they moved everybody to go back and actually reintroduce their lives to Irish music in, in the most beautiful ways. So we owe them an awful lot. I, I had the pleasure as a younger man to sit in Kitty Lennon. She was the piano player with the Kilfenora Cayley Band. To sit in her house and listen to the horror, because she was extremely involved. Imagine a woman, a woman in the 1950s, Bossing and ordering men around and telling them, here's how we're going to do it, boys. You're going to do it this way. We're going to have a competition. We're going to clean this up. And Father Murphy down in the church can't say a word. And everyone kind of went, okay, I hear you. I like it. 
I love it. I love that idea that, that's, you know, in many ways. And I, I, I know, you see, radical these days is somebody who shouts the loudest. That isn't my definition of a radical. My definition of a radical is somebody who subtly gives, introduces a notion into your head and suddenly you think you thought of it. That's radical. Let's have a tune. Okay. Let me see. Um, oh, I, I'm largely attracted to the ocean. I, I get very stressed if I'm not near the ocean. I live within 20 minutes drive of said ocean. I, I live in County Clare. I live in the Burren. It's that area that looks like the moon. Uh, if you're familiar with the series Father Ted, I live about three kilometres from Father Ted's house. But it's the ocean that draws me. I've always been that way. Um, oh, I hope this doesn't sound too... This is where my dad now will go, steady on, Otola. Speak less, play more. But every time I th- I, 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 I'm fascinated with the composition, I, I love writing, I love composing. Um, uh, every time I know a tune is coming good, I, get th- I hear the spray of the ocean. I can't describe it. And another thing that, okay, I might as well let this out right now. Um, I've got this theory that um, if you eat oysters, and that, that shock as you swallow that oyster, as it drops down your neck, oh my God, I'm hungry already. But when, as it drops down your neck, that same shock is that very moment that you jump into the sea. I love it. So I'm, I'm attracted to both sea and oysters. So um, just like here, um, our weather and our environment is getting a little bit more chaotic in Ireland too not with hot weather but with massive ocean storms so you know we just lost a a fisherman off Hookhead last week but I had the pleasure to work with a man called Theo Dorgan he's a beautiful poet fantastic novelist the best political analyst you will ever listen to he's so his theories are weighted and fair yet he pulls no punches. So I'd, I, got, I had the huge pleasure to work with Theo on a project and he gave me this following title, which I could never have come up with. But I, it's so beautifully... Only a poet could write this. It's called So Small the Boat, So Big the Sea.
Uh, I just realised that I had forgotten to ask you the, n the names of the first three tunes oh, yeah. again on our second yeah. go round. What were the name of the f first three tunes that you played? Um, I, uh, here's another theory of mine. Um, you know, the, again, it, I love dispelling myths. I love making this, you know, in Ireland... I've got a great friend. She's an amazing musician. She's kind of an alternative music player. She plays noise. She plays... She does live recordings, puts music to it. You name it, she does it. But she's from from the States. But she moved to the nicest, Le the nicest place in the world, which is County Leithrum. It's the time, place, forgot. It's just beautiful. It's the only place in the world they sell land by the gallon. But it's also largely... But she, she really got into this Irish music, again, fascinated with its character. But she was hit with this idea that, oh, you'll never be Irish. You know, oh, you can't play that. You're not Irish. All this kind of baloney. And, like, you know, I understand why this happens. So it doesn't make me angry. You know, the Irish think it's ours, the jig. Imagine the jig is ours. It's not. It's La Giga. It's Paganini. The real is the quadrille. It's Napoleonic. The mazurka, the hornpipe, the blah, 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 the polska. Is that Irish? No. Possibly the only one that's Irish that has no connectivity to any other dance music anywhere in the world is the slip jig, the 9-8. That's about the only one. But the jig is not ours. So what I played there was I played a waltz, which is really a jig, if you know what I mean. Just yeah. the thing that's different. It's what I... I'm fascinated with it's not the notes it's the phrasing it's the accent it's how you say it it's the heaviness or the lightness even the way I'm speaking to you right now for emphasis you've got to raise and drop your voice be heavy light the waltz has its notions and that's why so the waltz was the first one which I wrote again um, I called it The Lighthouse and the Mermaid because I got to do a lovely project in lighthouses last summer. So I was on Clare Island. I was in um, Loophead Lighthouse writing music, standing up in the... Come on, if you couldn't write music there, you'd want to give up music, you know? So that was mine. The second one, I'm fascinated with Swedish music, especially Swedish jigs. So the second one was a Swedish jig. And again, I, I kind of love that it's not Irish. And it, it gets the monkeys off my back. I don't have to be so afraid because it's not of my tradition. But there's a liberation when you experience other musics and see their connectivities, but also their differences. And again, look at that word, phrasing. I haven't mentioned a note. So then the Swedish one was that. And then the third one was a jig written by a Frenchman, a Breton. I adore Breton music. It's very different to Irish music. So is their language. You know, they're B Celts. So the Breton language, the Breish, is a completely different animal, but yet, I hate this word, it's a Celtic language. I don't use that word too much because it's a misnomer. But anyway, we'll the, get into the, that. The C word, the Celtic word. Yeah, hate it. And it's not because it's been overused now. It was actually overused. It was invented in an academic world in the 70s. A man went, there's a race of people, they came through Europe, we can see them still here, look at them there, they're all Celts. The only ones that called them Celts were the Romans. And they called them Kelty. Or maybe it was the Greeks, actually, who called them Kelty. Come on, that's not fair on any group. And what it does is, when you put a name on a group and go, and you stamp it, you build walls. I hate when that happens, because you exclude all the time. Are you Celtic? Are you from that area? Should you be playing it? 
I bloody well should, whether I'm from there or not. And I'll, I'll prove it to you, Dominic. And there's a great guy in New Zealand called Adam. I don't know what his surname is. I heard him at a gig. He was a whistle player. He was way younger than me. He was playing before us in the band I was playing in. And he had that heaviness of feeling that he said the following. He goes, you know, I'm really embarrassed that I play Irish music. I love Irish music, but I've never been to Ireland. But then he said the following thing, and I've quoted this man a thousand times since. He goes, when I hear it, it's Irish. When I play it, it's mine. And I think that's the best philosophy I could have ever been introduced to. Because it gets monkeys off your back. It stops you being in fear of judgment. And that's another thing my dad always told us. He goes, watch the people who observe and judge and are critical all the time. They're the most afraid. But that's quite interesting because... Part of what you're, you were talking about there, about the survival of the music, is about judgment. It is about playing the right way. And the, 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 competi- the competitions, competitions have, have those, you know, there's, there's a rubric, there's, there's yes. things that you have to yes. adhere to to, to succeed in the competitions, right? I'll put a provisio right? on that. I'll put a provisio on that one. Because, yes, competition is about displaying a certain style or a certain tendency to play and being perfect and knowing your versions but what do you do when you walk out of that competition what kind of a human being are you the minute you sit down with other people because competition doesn't matter anymore so i've known loads of people who are all ireland winners and okay i'll, I'll go with your theory actually no i'm just no, i'm no, just no, posing the question yeah, no, it's a good question because there are many people okay there are many let's call them child prodigies who came up along the ranks and were genius at competition but could only play competition. They either didn't survive as musicians when they hit adulthood, or they changed, and they had to go, okay, I better become a little bit more versatile and adaptive. Now, I I hear what you're saying, because Tolokosti will never save a music. I don't preserve. The same way Tolokosti will never save a language, even though I'm fluent in Irish and I adore the language but I believe these things like slang are meant to change that's just the way it is okay so 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 you're um in the VW Beetle with mm-hmm. your dad he's he's whistling <laughs> uh, speed bunny boat yes right so so how do you how do you get from there like when when do you actually start playing is it oh is it the fiddle you start with or the whistle no, or the believe it or not I don't remember starting playing because again my crazy dad had instruments all over the house so I don't remember a moment of instruction. And I was lucky that I was the youngest of five. So I had four older sisters who were already playing. So almost by osmosis. Uh, and, and your mother as well? Like, yeah. So what's her... She, we, the DNA, um, our pitch, our, 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 perf- our we, got, we can learn by ear, our, that, meant that DNA side of it, we get from her. She has perfect pitch. She's a little genius. She doesn't even realise it. Does she play she or sing? No, she's played. We used to have a little Custy Cayley band, the Tuna Cayley band, and she played piano. And then she used to play spoons. Gorgeous singer, but um, that intuition, that uh, playfulness in music, that ear we get from her. And da- my dad would never mind us saying that either. You know, even as young children, he might hear a tune on the radio, and he'd have to get us to write it out because he wouldn't be able to hear it and write it. So, and, and you'd be writing it out, uh, notating Easy. it? Yeah. 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 Or else, oh my God, we'd even annoy the man and write it out wrong. Right. You know, as kids. Right. Just to annoy him. So, so what, was, what was family like? 
was that family life like when you were growing up? Well, it sounds like the Swiss family Robinson, but I mean, like, look, like everybody else, we had family issues. And, and we, but I guess in every single room that I would walk by, I would hear a different type of music because I was the youngest. So one of my sisters was a crazy into Breton music. Another sister was mad into Appalachian. Another one, and then there was the, either the Kevin Burke or the Frankie Gavin side of the house. So, you know, the immersion was massive. And then my dad was extremely involved in teaching and bringing kids and bringing them off to play in competition or play for dances. So our weekends were full of that. Now, that sounds like heaven, but you hit teenagehood. The last place you want to be is stuck somewhere with your parents being bossed around on a Saturday night. But I owe them so much. We owe them so much for that reason. That, like, you know, it got us through the danger years when teenagers can give up something that they could have for the rest of their lives. And, and, and so somehow you managed to hold on to it. Yeah. Now, having said that, my dad, to this very day, equally, his love is sport. You know, he loves watching it. So I had to play sport. And what, did, what did you I you hurling? I did and I still remember the day I decided to not hurl anymore to this very day it broke his heart and my uncle's you know and things were very tense between us from did, what what happened so was it was I mean you say a day was it a day was it there like was a day I had had a load of energy injuries I was playing for my college I was slightly talented I, I was fast and I was skillful but I didn't have that element of pain barrier that you need to go through in any sport you know it might be exhaustion it might actually be a physical crunch that's what I admire in sports people that ability to not even be aware that they're in pain or exhausted my dad had it my uncle had it I didn't have it so if I was on an opponent that was extremely fast he beat me every time and also I had a few injuries few bad injuries and I was in teacher training college. I was becoming a primary school teacher. So all during my teacher training college, I played sports. Really loved them. And now, to this very day, I thank my dad for keeping me at sport till a certain age because to this very day, I still enjoy keeping fit. So I think that's one thing that I see in a lot of musical people's lives is fitness isn't a priority. And even in the professional world, it's even worse. You know, so so this very day, I owe him an awful lot for that. But... uh, I was coming back to County Clare to take up a teaching job and I'll never forget it, I was out in the street one night and I kind of met my friend Siobhan Peoples who I hadn't really seen in my college years and she goes, I remember going down to Mickey Cairns' pub down here going to have a tune and I went kind of, I just saw a different world I saw this social thing again I was reintroduced to the idea of God, you can go out on a Friday night and a Saturday night and you can do this whereas with sports and especially team sports sometimes you have to become the generic you have to do it for the team and you have to be as one and you can't really be different so I started seeing this musical world that was different and and I, I kind of fell in love with it again and again it, I discovered it as a young adult your parents can encourage you as many times as you want but you have to make these discoveries mm. because you notice something about yourself that makes you feel good and that's an ego thing and it's extremely important but that was my let's call it my light bulb moment that god and then i actually started taking music seriously for the very first time even though i play i never stopped playing you know but i never I, i'll be honest kaylee playing for kaylee dances paid my way through college 
you know? I was on the crest of that 1990s set dancing thing. I don't know if you remember it, but What I, was the 1990s set dancing thing? Was I was a, gone by okay. then. Okay. Well, what happened was, you might have remembered the line dancing thing that went all over Aye, the world. Well, at the very same, maybe just before that line dancing thing, to keep fit, everybody started re-dancing sets. But they almost would arrive to a venue with a change of clothes. Towels. Water. Now, again, it served a beautiful purpose to those who didn't like being in pubs. But me and a couple of friends of mine from County Clare saw a niche in the market and we set up this gold ring Cayley band. We travelled the country, Dominic, playing for Cayleys. Now, it was extremely tough. You'd play for three and a half, four hours and these people were fit. And, you know, many, there were still beautiful dancers, but, you know, you literally... Like, how you dance a set if you want to it's like an American square dance again it's Napoleonic came across from Europe all the way from the, the, the new soldiers who fought either with Napoleon or against Napoleon were granted land and they were the new social class but they didn't want to have their social nights out like the court the music previous the court of the harp and the bard so they, they took their, these military dances and the quadrille snuck into County Clare and, County, and into Ireland so um, these people you know so that I, I and it I didn't really I, now I loved my friends that I played music with in that Cayley band but it, it, I found it very physically hard and then that I was now going to be a teacher I didn't really need the money and then I sort of rediscovered this, the beauty in the session and all this lovely thing again so and then um, getting back to the hurling yeah. right so you're you have a sense then maybe that you can't do both? Uh, you certainly can't. I mean, like for fingers. Um, I, I, I broke... <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. I broke my nose twice. Um, I'm lucky to never break a finger that in any way that would have, you know, have it reset badly or stuff like that. I split a tendon in my knee, uh, broke both ankles. Um, and that's normal. And most sports people don't even bat an eyelid. Whereas... Pain and me aren't the best of friends. So, how did you tell your dad? Um, I'll never forget it. It was a summer's evening. I hadn't gone to training with the local senior club, and a delegation arrived to the house, obviously sent by my dad, because you know he knew I was too wily that I wouldn't listen to him. So they stood up in the kitchen, and my dad was in another room, and they went, you know, we kind of were hoping you'd come back training. I went, boys, I might as well tell you now, I'm done. To shock. But uh, I'm still kind of proud of that moment. And I think to this day, when my dad's... You see, I, I was just a regular old fiddle player. Do you, you know what I mean? I wasn't anything special. But then I started really thinking about playing and having things influence me and getting a passion for it. And I was very lucky. Uh, lucky that I didn't think too much about this. But within a year, I was 23. Within a year, I had an album made with a bazooki player called Sir O'Donoghue. And it was one of those lucky summers that um, no other album came out. So this album was actually quite popular. And people started talking about it and it got played an awful lot on the airways. And I really mean that if, if another few albums came out that summer, it wouldn't have been that popular. It was just another fiddle album. But we chose nice material. And I was starting to be influenced by Appalachian music myself. And I was starting to write and I was starting to get a huge... There's a lovely feeling when you do something that comes out of you, artistically. 
be that right or interpret a tune. It's mind-blowing and it is really good for you. It makes you feel extremely good. So I was looking, and I think my dad heard that and kind of went, whoa, God, that fella can play, you know, for the very first time. And he got over it quick then. You know, it wasn't a bone of contention for many years. And, like, we still discuss sport. And, but, I mean, like, my, my, you know, even this Christmas, you know, my girlfriend works in an old folks home and me and my dad went in and he took out the banjo and I took out the fiddle and we played for the old folks. And, like, oh, this is a beautiful memory, but, I, you know, sometimes I would go to games with him and my uncle and you'd meet, like, even Paddy Fitzgerald hurled against my uncle in New York. Which is amazing. How did that come about? He so represented Australia and my uncle moved to New York in 1962, I think, and represented New York. And back then, New York was almost as strong as the county teams at home. They nearly beat Kilkenny in a league final, which was amazing. But to this day, my uncle reckons it was a bad refing decision. But my most beautiful moment is when I'm coming out of a park or somewhere like that. It used to happen years ago more than now. But my dad and my uncle would meet their peers their peers that they hurled against and you should see them straighten up and get their big huge shoulders and the chest start puffing out and they shake hands but they've never forgotten that rivalry and they get younger looking it's the most beautiful thing you've ever seen and, and I'm, lo- I'm glad I understand where that comes from that's what sport did it for me and again I do a lot of swimming but a lot of people my age I'm 48 now they get um, tendon trouble and hand trouble I've got this theory that a lot of it is to do with that the muscles that you move to play music are super fit. It's the other muscles around them that you don't move as much that get unfit and then you get you, you kind of get strain. So I, I touch wood, I've never had strain or tendonitis or, you know, and a lot of my peers have. So I, I thank sport for that. I thank fitness, you know. Should we have another tune? Yeah. What will I play for you? Oh, okay. Um, is it okay to do another composition? Sure. Okay. Um, whatever, whatever you're... Um, I mean, this sounds uh, over the top, but whatever you're feeling in okay, here, good. do it. I will. Um, I, I was lucky to be part of... Uh, we were commissioned by the Arts Council in Ireland to... Um, not many people know this. In 1916, previous to 1916, Ireland was not with Greenwich Mean Time in its time zone. It was 25 minutes and 24 seconds ahead, behind um, London. Now, it didn't matter at all till communications got faster and till transport got faster. Literally, what you would do previous to that was um, a, a man or woman would get off a train somewhere, they would go to the local clock, set their clock, their watch to that, and that was the time. So the time in Kilrush, which is 30 kilometres from Ennis, wouldn't exactly have been the same time as Ennis, and it didn't matter because nobody was speaking to each other. But as the coordination became more important, England decided to put Ireland with Greenwich Mean Time just after the Easter Rising, in a time of just during World War I. It was a crazy time to do it. It raised hell in Ireland. The amount of letters we found in, in, in protest, the Countess Markievicz, who became extremely important in the, the War of Independence, went crazy. She went absolutely nuts over this, and, and I guess rightly so. Um, but the most beautiful story I discovered, because, I mean, look, it's very hard to write music about 
a thing like that. But what you do is you get moved to write. So I was with other people writing it, and some lovely people. But I discovered in London in the 1880s that every, you know, and, and also we use atomic clocks to set the time now. But back then, at 6 a.m., what basically how you set the time anywhere in the world is at 12 midday, where's the sun? Because that, where the sun is at its highest should be 12 midday. That's how they set it. So at 6 a.m., through lines of elevation and angle, they, they work it out. So every morning at 6 a.m. in Greenwich or in Dunsink, which was Dublin meantime, they would set the time. There was two girls in London who would run to Greenwich every single morning because they, they owned two quite accurate timepieces. They would set their time, they would run to the business district in London and sell the time. I thought that was beautiful. So I called this little tune Time Zone Laneway. And, and, and this project was to do what? What was the project? We called it Edges of Light. They wanted us to reflect on that moment. And this is an Arts Council yeah. project? And uh, you can find it on the internet if you're looking for it. And we went around the country. We had a dancer, we had a harp player, we had a piper. We wrote stuff. We discovered, listen to this one, that the very same week, it was in October that they um, changed time or coordinated time. Number two in the European charts because there was a European chart for the tenor singers. Who was our famous tenor singer at the time? Count John McCormack. What was he number two in the chart set? The Dawning of the Day. So we based it all around that. We got an old um, wireless radio, did a recording and we literally just sat down and listened to him sing. This was reflection and the audience listened and then we would have a tune afterwards or a melody before it. We had a lot of bell sounds, clock sounds. We were whistling. It's pretty interesting for me revisiting John McCormick because that was the kind of music that my dad always liked. And I never, obviously, I never had any time for it at all. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I was writing a piece for radio in the States about my dad. And of course... John McCormick was the the music that I kind of went to, and I started listening, properly listening to it. And um, you know, there's amazing beauty in it, beauty. in it, exactly. the antiquity, but also his his. There's the beauty in the antiquity of the recordings as well. Mm-hmm. And there's there's all that, but but the arrangements and and then his his. I mean, it sounds like staying in the office, but his singing is incredible. Use that word again, Dominic. It's his phrasing. They say Frank Sinatra was like that too for phrasing. The line was given to you in in interpretation perfection. That was the difference. That that's the really good singers. Even if you take Bob Dylan, who's not a great musical singer, you get the line perfectly delivered to you. That you you feel you understand the line. Oh, he's he is he's something else yeah. on the delivery but front. McCormick yeah. could do that. He could. His phrasing was was paramount. You know, and I I I'm guessing this. I know nothing about the man. I'd say he pondered long and hard as he took on a new song on the phrasing. You can hear it. He gave you that word that you needed, and you never lost contact with the poetry. Which is, you know, it's really important in songs. So that's, I'm going to play that tune in that one. And then I'm going to go into a tune. We had the passing of uh, one of the Guinness heirs. Um, this, uh, was it just before Christmas? Garak de Brune. He would have been a Guinness um, family member. He lived in Lugalaw in uh, County Wicklow. He, but he was also crazy into Irish music, which was... You know, Anglo-Irish. How the hell did that happen? He was one of these flamboyant men. There's a beautiful documentary on him, actually, if you're looking, if you need to find it. But 
again, how will I put this? He was a piper. So he wrote two tunes. One is actually it's called The Man of Arran, and it's quite in the repertoire of, Irish, of the Irish music. The second one, which I really love, is The Maple Leaf. So I'm doing a gig one, one, night, one night in Dublin about five, ten years ago, and I was talking to the crowd, and I was on YouTube, and I was going like an idiot, of course, because Tola gets everything wrong. Um, I was going, oh, this is a great tune that I learned from a great piper, I think he's passed away, called Garak de Brun. The next day I get this I get this email. I'd like to inform you that I am hale and hearty, but thanks for playing the tune. And I loved it. <laughs> so he's this I go, I go into a reel, because I better play something that isn't mine, um, called The Maple Leaf. So time zone laneway into the maple leaf. Thank you. 
So apart from your dad, right, who were the teachers who, who influenced you? Uh, there'd be two things. It would be like, you know, maybe a couple of teachers who opened something for you and then also the players who you heard who you kind of... There might be certain players who you... Yeah. For some reason, it, it, there is something, I think, magical about the, the idea that one person can play a tune and leave you somewhat unmoved and another person can play it and somehow the way they play it just blows your heart wide open, you know? Um, I didn't have any teachers, so... But I... I guess the people that moved me, like you just said, I, I love emotion. I love being able to hear it in music. I, I don't like moments when I hear, hey man, look, no hands. I don't like those moments. And the day I stopped thinking about other musicians was the day I felt free. You know that we all have these little paranoias. I, you know, I, I, um, I hope you're familiar with the Woody Allen movie, um, Sweet and Low Down. You know, it's, 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 it's Sean Penn is a gypsy jazz... Uh, guitar player in America at the very same time as Django the minute you mention Django's name the poor guy fainted it's a Woody Allen movie but it Woody Allen can really get into the mind of someone but Sean Penn couldn't get past people who were judging him it's if you can you get extremely free and you don't care how technical it sounds but you care how it feels and I'm more fascinated with the non-musician what does the non-musician need when they're at a gig? How do I keep them there? How do I make them feel... I, here's what I mean. Um, my girlfriend has loads of music in her, but she's not a musician, right? But I'm more fascinated to know what moves her. You know, so I, 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 I drive the poor girl mad at times because, you know, I, I, she'd be on the radio and go, what are you hearing there? You know, do, do you like that? Why do you like it? Or I, you know what I mean? Or I'm, you know, sometimes she'll go, oh, that went way over my head when something's really technical. Mm-hmm. Because, but I love when she goes, ouch! Because someone's playing really rough or really violent and I go, yeah, what? go on, let me hear that again. Was that that bit? Well, that's interesting because um, I've referred a, a few times in various interviews to a, um, to a CD called The Brass Fiddle of Donegal Fiddle yeah. Music. And um, one of the things that struck me about that first time was the the roughness of it it felt rough to me yeah. after listening to martin hayes and yeah. and other people who are um, yes. and and i remember uh, finding that really difficult and then i, I was just reading a, a speech that martin hayes had written the other day and he said that he found donegal music initially very hard to get to grips with and i was like oh I'm not on my own here. No, you're not. <laughs> you know, so, but yeah. but it, it 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 it's interesting. Like the 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 um the the questions that it asks of me as a listener, right? You have to be able to, you have to be willing to be made a bit uncomfortable yes. to get to a point where of enlightenment, for yes. want of a better way of putting it. But as long as you understand the uncomfort, the discomfort, well, do you, you sort of have to go towards it. Yes, you and do. you have to go into it, yeah. and you and you have to allow will. yourself to feel it. Yeah. You know I what bet I mean? you non-musicians wouldn't have had the same pain moment as especially fiddle fiddle players are going to especially fiddle players from our neck of the woods which is martin hayes and me because i'm not oh my god it sounds as if i'm putting myself in his brackets i'm not but i do like tone i do like clarity it's just the way i think about music so the dunning is that a clear thing no it's not it's a tola thing i hope because tola costi doesn't have a style from anywhere that's another thing again i'll save no styles either um it's it's of no interest to me. Even though I adore hearing people that play in the style, I'm not saying that. It's just of no interest to me. 
where I lie is, I, I hope, sometimes I, I make myself sick with, with the way I'm speaking, but I mean this. My, I think where I can deliver is in interpretation. So I, I'm going to push this back yeah. to then, before you get to the point where you have, quote unquote, no style, but you're on, right? who are the people, yeah. who are the, if you don't have yeah. actual teachers, who are the people that... I suppose as a younger man, it would have been the Kevin Burks of the world. Uh, my sister Mary was mad into Frankie Gavin. My sister Frances was crazy into Kevin Burke. Okay, so it's they, a, it's a fiddle playing deathmatch. Yes, okay, so exactly. so so and it's I, one versus the other. What exactly. what are the styles? What are the styles? Well, Frankie Gavin again. Here's another theory of mine. You you play as you speak. So you've got Kevin Burke, who's got this huge different mix between Cockney London and Mayo, and now America. And if you ever hear him speak, you know, it's kind of really like that. And then he plays and there's beautiful clarity. And a lot of the time, oh God, Kevin Burke, if you ever hear this, I'm so sorry. But I think you let the tune talk. The tune speaks to me when Kevin Burke plays. And again, he plays within that realm. Frankie Gavin, very, very, very orate, very quick thought, very witty, you know, really funny with the one-liners, just as much as with the music, and he speaks like that, you know, and again, he, he's, and he's the most amazing musician in the world as well, by the way, you know, he, he's fluidity, he's quickness of thought, he's playfulness, he's, he, you know, his ability to kind of, to, to kind of, in a healthy way, show off. Right. And he owns the tune. The tune don't own him. He the boss. Do you see what I mean? Now, there's two different, completely different approaches. Mother of God, I hope neither of them hear this because, you know, it's my interpretation of them. But I think I'm giving them a, a fair compliment in, in my own little way. So Kevin Burke influenced me for that reason because I loved how he would do well on a note. He, and I loved how he... he he would repeat a phrase very, very much like, here's my word again, there's that word. He would repeat the phrase, he would go back to the phrase. Like Martin Hayes would repeat a phrase like that too. So I loved Hayes' playing even as a younger man. But very early I kind of started researching fiddles from other parts of the world just to get that monkey off my back. Remember, I, I was learning at an older age. I, I was coming from sport. I needed to lose my paranoias. And sometimes you lose them better by learning a new language, by learning a new accent, by kind of, and melody from different parts of the world have different accents. And I was, I, I wanted to see, could I do it? So I started really, hear, I, I got into klezmer music. I got into Breton music, Asturian music. I think Asturian fiddle players are more closely related in embellishment, you know those words, the floweriness, if you don't understand what I'm talking about, you know what you do with your fingers, your interpretation of note. I think Asturian fiddle players do an awful lot more things that are close to Irish fiddle playing than Scottish fiddle playing. I'm convinced of that. And even then you get to Galicia, and it's a totally different music again. And then Cantabria, beautiful. I love the northern Spanish music. And then you got the Basque which doesn't sound like any other music I've ever heard. And lo and behold, the Basque language, linguists can't link it to any other language in the world. So it has to be over 7,000 years old. And then the DNA tested the Irish, which is, I know, if doctors and university people here mightn't like this, the, you know, the Irish aren't closest in DNA relations to the Scots. 
the Irish and the Basque are the most closely related. And look at the Basque. Rosy red cheeks, blue eyes, dark skin. So... I know I didn't really answer your question. So, Jackie Mollard from, from Brittany, you know, he influenced me big time because, again, a man who was self-taught. And you can hear it in his playing. He plays Breton music beautiful. But, man, is he a, you know, he's a man of the world. His compositions are mind-blowing. And here's another lovely trend if you want to identify something. So, he, let me, I'll stick with your question, in fairness. So, there was a Christiane Lemaitre beautiful, more traditional, a Fanch Landau. These beautiful fiddle players from there, the fiddle players from Asturias, um, Andy Statman, who's more of a klezmer mandolin player. But I loved his idea of waltz. I, I've always been fascinated with the waltz. And it, it, it's, a, it's a problem of mine, but everything I compose starts as a waltz. And then I have to kind of put it into a different beat. But the waltz is my most easiest way to interact with my subconscious, which is kind of that little netherland. So your subconscious is is sort of in the in the three four, the yeah. six eight. Yeah, it really is. That's that's where it starts. But I. Oh, that's then, interesting. Isn't yeah. It? Then I I was asked one time to drive a jeep from London to Greece for a rich man who had a villa and a friend of mine was a chef in the villa and he knew I was doing nothing and he goes, would you drive this man's jeep down there? And I went, of course I will. And he gave me three weeks. So I hit off down through France but instead of kind of coming down the eastern coast of Italy and, and catching a ferry to, to an island, it was near, it was, oh, it was Ithaki, brilliant little island between Italy and Greece. But instead of doing that, I came down the Dalmatian coast and went to Albania, Romania and fell in love with the horos and with the 7-8 tune and the 11-8 tune and the 13-8 tune. And why? I, because I'd heard them before, obviously, with the East Wind and the Bill Whelan and all everybody there. But I saw them danced. For the very first time, I saw their context. And I was lucky to meet people like Paddy Fitzgerald here, who would have seen the fiddle under my arm, but would have taken me in and gone, no, that's a northern Bulgarian tune. That's a horo. I was going, okay. And I look at, look, see the way they dance now? They're going to advance there and they're coming back there now. And here they just changed tune. I went, all right. So I fell in love with that. So a lot of my compositions now are in the 7 8 or the 11 8 realm as well, just because it's, again, I know I keep saying it, but it, for me it's liberating. Mm. I feel like as if I, I, I'm judged in a different way. And, and I judge me in a different way when I write in that. In that what, 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 like, uh, you know, um, what does it do for your um, view of yourself? I mean, wh- why, why do you need to be liberated? Um, I, I guess... Like, and I yeah, mean you. It's a good question. It's a very good question. Um, you see, I, I'm as fascinated with the psychiatry of music as I am with the physiology of music. What am I thinking? How am I moved? When I actually physically play, what's going on? What emotions am I translating? Um, to feel good... What do I need to do to go to my happy place, to have my own self-therapy? Because, look... But, but so, so when, when you're playing, I mean, I started off asking you about composing, but actually when you're playing, it's not like you kind of begin to play and the first three notes, suddenly you're in that happy place or the deep water. No. I mean, it's a journey, right? And you're kind of, you know, you're pa- it's like going into the sea. You're sort of... Yeah. It's, it's, I guess sometimes it's a plunge. 
But often you're kind of waiting in. Yes, but any good psychiatrist will tell you that you learn the steps. You learn how to put yourself in to that position. So when you're composing yes. and you're going towards these, mm-hmm. um, uh, to me, <laughs> incomprehensible I rhythms know. like 11 eight. My poor dad. I, yeah. I, like, why? Um, because for me, I get, there, there's, there's, there's an ego satisfaction. My ego feels really good. I feel really proud of myself that I can actually do it. Because I think it goes back to my weakness with mathematics that I felt so bad and I had struggled with mathematics all my life and a lot of music at, at school and oh, all yeah. through school and yeah and uh, even to this day you know I sometimes do substitute teaching and like I'll get a, a very clever sixth class and like the maths now will push me to the very limit and these are only 12 year olds you know and is it mainly sub teaching you do now or no, do you do I, I only do about 50 days a year substitute right. teaching but it's and then you're pl- playing the rest I play of the, the rest I travel I, I work with different bands um, but getting back but to your question yeah, yeah um you see, anybody, if there's musicians listening to this, you know, I'm sure they'll agree with me here. When you take out your fiddle or your instrument, even at home, you are practicing, but you have little people sitting there with you. You're imagining they're hearing you. And you, you play to them, to the unknown people that are, you know, the, the invisible presences, let's call them for the use of a better word. But you do. I, I do. Maybe I should just speak about me. But so there's a psychology. There's a, you know, you can either be paranoid all the time as you practice or you can liberate yourself and go, I'm playing to them. I, I think this is good enough. I really feel this has, it has validity. This is, this is worthy. I feel good about this tune I've written. I feel it has worth. And, and you get better as people... Look, people compliment you or people record your tunes and then it makes you feel better again. You know, but I mean, like, the psychology of music is... is the psychiatry, it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's as important. And you have to know how you feel. You have to know... You have to be able to, to self-medicate, you know, in the feelings that you allow to come to the top. Here's what I mean. I work a lot in University of Limerick. You know, and there's a traditional Irish performance. And I teach an awful lot of, about stage fright. Because I've learned how to take myself out of the stage fright moments. And I've, I've gone to... Did, did you suffer from stage fright? Oh, yeah, I did. I was... Compli- what, what, what's that like? What, it's describe awful, it for me. Because what you try and do is you try and go on stage and you play inside yourself. And, and even when you speak, you go, this is a tune I learned from somebody else. And then, you know what I mean? And then you play. And you always come off stage and you go, I didn't give 100% because I was so afraid. In, 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 the, in the, um, the five minutes beforehand, so you're going to the toilet, you're getting a quick drink, whatever it is, before you go on. Yes. Like, what are you feeling like then? Um, would you believe it? Can you t- tell, yeah. like, um, I can. T- tell me the story of an evening when okay, you've done t- I'm going to play it this evening for this um, benefit concert that's going to happen. And here's what I do. I put my fiddle down when I've warmed up in a room, if I get a room, and I sit down and I mentally play without touching, without moving my fingers, without anything. I mentally go through the first set of tunes every moment. Because what you're doing is you're meditating. You're absolutely making yourself concentrate on, okay, and you don't, you're not even allowed to sing it. You be the tune. You know, as my mother says, you visualize yourself playing. You know what I mean? And you, you be that tune. And you get better at it. And then when you walk on, in your own little mind, 
you've done. When you didn't have that facility, right, and you hadn't kind of grown that ability, what was the experience of playing like? The experience was not never good enough. And then I would be so hard on myself afterwards. Whereas now, if I make a mistake, you'll get see the dirtiest smile come on my face. So I, I want to go towards that. Go, go, go. So, so can, I, can you tell me about a time that that happened? Uh, yes, I can. Oh, on many's occasion. I, I, I remember again when that album came out. This is your, your first yeah, album. My first album came out and I was being asked to play concerts I would never have played at before. And I would have walked on stage and I would have almost treated it like sport previous to that I would have warmed up and I would have been be the ball and I would have been so proud and over outward and then I would have gone on stage and died a death because the heartbeat would have increased the adrenaline was far too much you know it would be like drinking four cups of coffee which is what you need to play sports but it's the very last thing you need you need no adrenaline in your muscles when you pick up your instrument so then I went to reading books from surgeons people who need the most steadiest of hands and the most the most comfortable of, what's the word? The most comfortable of moods before they perform, which is an extremely delicate and accurate piece of handwork. And they had all these tricks and these ways of thinking their way through it, you know? So that was one way of doing it. I learned even, you know, if you're playing a slow tune, and this is when the nerves... And if was, it, was it unpleasant? Um, yes, because y- you knew you couldn't stop because people were watching you. Yet, you'd come off the stage and you would be so hard on yourself. I would be so negative towards myself. You really messed it up. You were so awful. Are, are you, are you, so you're driving home or whatever and you're like, ah. somebody, somebody asked you how it was a gig and you're like, eh, it was all right. Well, you know what? Which is often you go, oh, I was really good. But inside you were dying, which is even worse. But that's the younger man's nature too, you know. There's a lovely luxury to getting old. You really start understanding and liking yourself a little bit more. So there is that too. But here's an amazing trick. Like, you know, you might have a slow tune to play. Beautiful slow tune. And for fiddle players, anybody fiddle players out there, you know what I'm talking about here. You get the shaky bow hand. That bloody hand won't stop shaking and your bow is like a, a, a starling jumping on a telephone wire. And I, I, I started talking to photographers. And what photographers do is they have to hold up that camera, take that unshaked picture here's what they do I'm pursing my lips for radio people here and what I'm doing is in the movement of bow I'm going (gasps) and I'm blowing out and as I blow out I will never ever have a shaky hand and I learned that from photographers I actively asked people in other fields how do you do this you know how do you stop yourself how does your nerves get how do you stop your nerves getting in your way and look at they all say this well they never fully stop but you have to have tricks another trick I do is I never sit on stage full frontal you'll never see both shoulders of Tola Costi I always give an audience my shoulder because I feel I'm less exposed physically that people aren't looking at my body it's really weird but I feel more comfortable so you'll see me I'm like I'll be especially if I'm playing with another person and I, also I feed off other people I feed off their physicalness. I need them to look at me. I need to look at them. I need them to feel as if they know I'm here and that I know they're there. And I, you know, I've got a friend in New Zealand. I'd be playing with him on Monday, Jerry Paul. And like, you know, I can remember the first few times I played with him, you know, big gigs. And I'd, I, I might be a little bit into myself 10 years ago and I might 
you know, be into myself. And you, all you'd hear is, I'm right over here, mate. You know, I'd like to laugh. As he's playing the little brat, you know, but it did me the world of good because he was Mr. Extrovert. But he taught me, you know, be with the people on stage, feed off them, take their energy, feel good, and, and like, smile at them. Tell them, you know, if they're doing something nice, go, oh, that's gorgeous, do it again. You know, again, think of the non-musician. Stop thinking about the person judging you. The non-musician doesn't know what you're doing. They just want to feel. They want to get an emotion that they can't understand. And remember, it's mainly non-musicians who pay into gigs. Let's be honest. Uh-huh. Um, let's have another tune yeah. okay listen I'm going to come back to County Ireland it's only fair uh, because you'd swear that I don't like this music I adore it but I adore it more because I've experienced others oh god will I do you a little um, 7 8 or first and I'll go into another jig or a reel that sounds yeah because I might as well do yeah, I did mention Bulgaria Romania um, this is one I've composed as very very lately um, it came to me during the Christmas. Uh, I have this theory also that you, when I pick up my fiddle for the first two minutes, I have this rule that I, I, I cannot be critical and I have to play notes and I record them. And nine times out of ten I get a tune out of them. Because there's a moment of criticalness that your brain kicks in after two minutes of you playing, it's not there for the first few minutes because your brain hasn't woken up to being critical. But some of the most beautiful little melodies are phrases. I've said that word ten times today. I really mean it. You have. It's, a it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I never say notes. I say phrases. How, what, if, if you're not a musician, it's, it's the words you choose to explain yourself. Phrases are the notes that explain your emotion. Uh, you know, words in a song are kind of phrases too, but melody can tell you things. So this one is uh, called Metronome, but it's um, M-E-T-R-O slash G-N-O-M-E. It's the um, garden gnome that takes the subway. So metronome, uh, you know what, I'll go into, I'll play something very traditional first. Um, I had the pleasure, another man, here's another man of the in these 80s that I got to meet that would have... I hate the word, but would have preserved Irish music in a time of dire consequences. Michael Russell, from County Clare, from Doolan. Whistle player? Yes, a most beautiful whistle player. Inimitable. You think it's the simplest thing that could be copied? You try and copy Michael Russell, and here we go again with my theory. Michael played as he spoke. He would take breaths in funny places the most beautiful places, mysteriously places to take a breath in Irish music. And he also spoke that way, but he was also an anthropologist's dream. He knew so much folklore. He knew so much things about the culture of the land. Here's a beautiful thing about him. I mentioned, remember I mentioned in the 50s women moving away from the west coast of Ireland, leaving men unmarried and unmarriable. So Michael lived in the same house all his life with his three brothers because they never managed to marry. So Michael was the stonemason. You might have heard of Moher Flagstone. It's very, very famous in Ireland. Michael was the stonemason. Packy was the beachcomber, walking the beaches of Doolan, taking bits of timber, because there's no trees that grow on the west coast of Ireland, really, with the storms. So taking bits of timber, making chairs, making whatever he could out of them. And Gussie, <laughs> Gussie was the philosopher. 
if you were going to Dublin and he got wind that you were going to Dublin, Dominic, he'd be banging on your door going, will you get the new Sartre book that's in the library? Or Young, I really need it. And he read the deepest of books. A man who was never educated. Isn't that so beautiful? But Michael, especially with my sister Mary, Mary lived in Doolan. She, they had a beautiful friendship. And I, I came at Michael sideways by, by default because Mary was such a good and I'd be visiting Mary and she'd bring me down to pubs and I'd meet Michael and then Mary moved off and I'd play with Michael. But I really need, you know, you've, you may, if you've been to Ireland, have visited Doolan and it's like Dingle, it's like a, a tourist mecca. Doolan wouldn't be there but for Michael Russell. Michael Russell went to Germany in the 80s and German people fell in love with this simple, spiritual mysterious music because it wasn't testosterone driven it was gentle you know it was it, it had a different beauty and they they flocked to Doolan they started coming in busloads so Michael would literally he was almost like a guru you know people would come oh Michael Russell you are here you know and Michael would go yes I'm here you know what I mean what beauty can you imagine and he would sit around playing his little whistle drinking his cups of tea or coffee and I had the privilege of learning some tunes from Michael. And again, it's not... Michael didn't take me under his wing, but Michael was nice to me. As a younger man, when another man might have been bored with such a f- Egypt walking in and annoying him. You know, but he, he had patience. And I really mean this. People of that age get kudos because they were... Their music was hated for long enough. So that when they see young people like me or Germans flocking in to hear them... I mean, even to this very day, my dad and Ennis Diamond, he's one session left, and he'll come to me buzzing when he comes home, going, Jenny Tola, a German girl came in playing tonight. Holy moly, she was way better than you. But, like, it means so much that these people are playing the music that was despised, and it was the music of the dirt, you know, the dirty dirt, and there they are playing it. So I'm going to play a Michael Russell tune, because I... Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, here we go. This is called the the yellow wattle. A wattle is a hazel branch that they would... Hazel is a lovely malleable um, piece of timber. It's, it's what we coppice. And you could, once you cut a hazel tree, it'll grow back straighter. But they used it as a pin or as a wedge that they would drive into the thatch. So the yellow wattle would be in one of them. So, and then... Uh, sure, look at I'll play a metronome. Anyway... <laughs> So...
right, where should we go next? So, was there ever any pressure growing up in a family where, you know, your siblings were all playing and achieving music at a certain, to a certain level? Do you know what I mean? Yes. Listen, it would have been difficult for us to not play. Let me put it like that. Um, we were expected to play on a Saturday night in either a pub in, like called Jimmy Morgan's in Corrafin or play in a hotel on a Sunday night called the Claremont Hotel. That's just the way it was. Um, did we resist it? Did we fight it? Absolutely. Were we horrid teenagers sometimes to be with? Totally. Did our parents put up with an awful lot? Absolutely. Did we have tough times sometimes when our parents weren't in the best of moods and we all weren't getting on that well? Totally. But thank God for nostalgia and thank heavens for looking back along that. You know what I mean? Because you, we can now go, oh, thank heavens we kept playing music because look who we'll be doing a Saturday night now. And believe you me, many's the person that comes up to me from my school days. Because I have to say this too about my dad. My primary school started every single day with a session. All 90 kids came into one room and played for a half an hour. We danced a set. Then we opened our books. So there was a huge amount of kids learning, playing. Many didn't keep it up. Many as the kid came or adult now comes up to me going, God, I wish I kept that up. Because I can't even teach my kids now. I don't. And I go, yeah, I know what you mean. I guess I do owe my parents an awful lot. Are you owe any, anyone owes their parents an awful lot to do that? So it's interesting how um, now... You mentioned, for instance, the University of Limerick, mm-hmm. and everyone who we speak to who is in Ireland talks about the amazing number of young musicians yes. coming out just uh, nationally and internationally. Yes. Just it's extraordinary, extraordinary. Right? And I wonder what happens to this music that in your dad's generation, my uncle's generation, my own father's generation was. Um, it was not just, as you mentioned, I'm not so much talking about the kind of the, the notion of it being kind of dirty or unworthy mm-hmm. or anything, but just that it was, it just was what it was, yep. right? It was unmannered and often untutored, mm-hmm. right? It was like you learned, like my uncle did, you know, he yes. just learned by year and played as best he could and developed his own thing. What happens when that becomes something that is not commodified exactly, but it's studied and it becomes an academic discipline mm-hmm. and... Um, how does that change it? You know, know. It's, it's no longer something that is kind of, I don't know how to say grown organically at the soil, and I'm not talking no. about some romanticised vision of the past, but I, do you know what I'm getting I do, at? I like, know exactly what you're it's saying. a different thing. My dad has this, said almost word for word what you just said, that there, he fears the over-academisation of this music because the people who made it famous or who preserved it Many of them, most of them were uneducated. And if you look, and here's his argument, I'm actually paraphrasing what he would say. He'd go, the ones that are now most successful professionally at this, because now there is an opportunity to be professional, are the ones who are also academically astute and are academically strong because they can promote. They can, in proper English, apply for an arts council grant. You know, they have the confidence through academia to pursue this, many of them have already another, what's the word, another career that they can fall back on, like myself. You know, and that the ones who aren't so confident could be amazing musicians, but may not feel that they're good enough. So I I actually 
see your point. I don't fully agree I mean, with I'm not, it. I, no. I don't feel like I'm making a point no. one way or the other that's good or bad. I just, I'm curious yeah. about it. Like. My dad would make exactly that point and he would feel very strongly about that. Mm. Even though he was an academic, if you know what I mean. He yes. was in college. Yeah. But he, he makes exactly that. I, I'll put it another way to you. First of all, I'll go back a little bit on your question. Irish music is bucking every trend in the folk musics all over the world. The amount of per head of population that are playing now is stunning. You take Ennis as a t- town as a population of 20,000 people. One time, about five years ago, I sat down and I drew a 10k circle around the town of Ennis only. Let's say the population is now 50,000 people, right? I counted every music teacher within that 10k circle. I came up with a number of over 600. Now you do the math. You multiply that by 10 students. And that's not County Clare. That's not even the west of Ireland. That's not even Ireland. There are hundreds of thousands playing. It's frightening. Um, And just to get back, because you made a point, I am in the minority in my musical influences. Most Ireland is in, I mean this with respect, is in regression. The cycle is looking backwards. Most of those, the, the largest number now are the 15 to 25 year olds. That's where the number is, the bubble has gone biggest. Right. That number, they're going back to the music of 1920s. Yeah, so uh, now, uh, is that a search for um, a unique voice? Is it a search for authenticity? Is it. I have no idea. Michael Coleman recordings? Yeah. And the From my perspective, it baffles me. I have no idea why. And when I That's, teach... It's fascinating. It That's is fascinating. It. And it's just as um, complimentary to the music as me, who will never go back there. Do you see what I mean? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. I, I, and, and I'm not making a judgment yeah. either way. I'm no, no, very curious about it. Yeah, and my dad loves it. Oh, yeah. Because my generation looked outward. You know, mm. we incorporated music and our compositions and stuff you know most of the 20 year olds are playing it's such a beautiful style but also very very complimentary to the older music that went Mm -hmm. you know I'm in the minority in the country that's why I have to travel all the time by the way you know what I mean because and I mean this with respect and it's it's a healthy thing there are so many playing and playing at such a high standard and better than me that I have to travel for my professional job what, what constitutes better than you? Well, again, uh, maybe. I, and I know yeah. that's a that's a sort of yeah. relative it's term, but I'm, but like, what 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 do you hear in another player? Where you, it's not about yeah. better at the, at the level yeah. that you're at. Suppose, a, at my level, it's yeah. about better, but it's not. About yeah, I suppose it, they're playing in an older way than me. They're playing with embellishments and with phraseology. My word again, that is older, and is beautifully attractive, and. And they could have, you could have heard that very same music 50 years ago, the way they're playing. This. Now, you mentioned nostalgia. I mean, nostalgia is vastly marketable. Is it partly yes. nostalgia? Well, probably, it's probably a nostalgia. I, 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 like, I've, I've, got a, I've got American relatives yeah. who, who would hear Irish music, yes. and they, their vision of Ireland is not the vision of you know, Limerick Town Centre. It's, it's um, the, the quiet man. And yeah. <laughs> I would agree with you had those people that we're talking about been in their 40s or immigrated. These are people who are 15 years old, 25 years old. I put it differently. I think they're in their own little revolution because a lot of their parents would have been 
if they were playing, might have been progressive like me. I hate the word, but you know what I mean? Looking to other musical influences. And they go, I'm not going to play with Dead Plate. I don't want to do Afro-Celtic exactly. sound system. I'm going to go back. You know, up yours, if you know what I mean. And you can Aye. understand why. And Aye. so in their own way, they're being revolutionary because they're Aye. not copying what the generation above them just did. Yeah. And I, I get a lovely I'm smile. I'm going back eyes. to the source. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah, and isn't it lovely? Yeah, because you, the the last thing you'll do is play what your parents play. That's just a given. The same way you won't play sport like your parents played sport when you get strong enough and have enough of an attitude. Yeah. Well, that seems like a beautiful, optimistic note to end on. Mm-hmm. So, um, going to be greedy and ask you for another tune. Absolutely. Or two. Yeah. Okay. Uh... No. Um... <coughs> It's probably strange for you to pick tunes out of the air. I don't know if you'd thought about this before, like what you were going to play. Oh, a little you? bit, I have to admit, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, I, I would. That would be the professional in me. Aye. Be prepared, Aye. you know, or best prepared Aye. to fail, Aye. you know. Um, what, about, um, what about a couple of slides? You know what? I'll be straight up. I'm the most useless slide player you've ever now, heard in your life. Here's a question for you. What is a slide? <laughs> uh, well, it's in two-time beat, yeah. but um, or it's not even. I. Good question. I'll give you a better piece of a, f- a factoid. Right? There's a book that they discovered about 15 to 20 years ago in a dump. Um, a manuscript, a mu- musical manuscript. It came from a canon goodman who, and here's the important bit, who moved to Dingle two years before the Great Famine in 1843. But he had a real big interest in music. And I suppose just after that great famine, a lot of musicians died. So it was kind of lucky that, that they did. So he made friends with a piper called Kennedy and he wrote down every dance tune that Kennedy played. And this book this was is in found... Dingle in County Kerry. So it was, it was found in a skip in County Cork, thrown out of some ancient Georgian house, if you know what I mean. But how many polkas and slides did Kennedy play? very few that polkas and slides crept in afterwards and I keep telling this to people from other countries that I teach or that I interact with our music is young it's always changing because it has to because we just mentioned it the next generation don't even want to dance your dances well you know I'm not the same person I was five minutes ago no and 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 neither am I you know the world is a vast organic but it makes it makes me love the music more because it's a little bit more fluid than we think it is, mm-hmm. and that's the same with the world. And I like you know there's something very appealing at this current moment in time with fascism on the rise, yes. with the idea that um, your notions of national ownership can be bollocks. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know I mean? Oh yeah, music has music has has started a few wars too. I'm sure. Uh, in its time, I bet you, you know. Two oh, no doubt, groups, no yeah. doubt. You know, bagpipes and all that. But anyway, I'm right, going so to. Uh, uh, how about this? Because it's almost. Uh, Thank you for doing this, oh. Tola. It's been a total, so. total delight. Thank you. I hope so, as my father'd say. Well, you were never short of words, Tola. <laughs> so I'm going to play a lovely reel called "Love at the Ending."
came to Ennis many, many years ago, made a load of friends, and uh, it's just so, so lovely to play with him. Another, another great person we'd like to welcome on stage to finish up tonight, and uh, I know all the family belonging to her. Isn't music such a lovely, small little world? Uh, give a massive, massive, big welcome to Corinne Strating, please.
Tola Custy with Ido Barker and Fiddle and Corinne Stranning on flute recorded at the last jar, the first of the three fundraisers at the last jar for bushfire relief. And you can find out more details about their upcoming um, relief gigs at the last jar's Facebook page. And that's it for today. Thanks again, Tola Custy. Hi, my name is Rosa. Please become a subscriber to the podcast. Thank you.